told you before that um, I grew up um, pretty much as an atheist from about the age of six or seven till I was 17. And um, the vacuum in my teen years was filled by uh, the Beatles. Um, and uh, my, I guess my mind was shaped by rock music, um, and probably in the late 70s, a little bit of the jam and Stiff Little Fingers and Bob Dylan and various other things. No, not actually Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan came in in my... Uh, my my af- my after Christian conversion period, um, and as a result of that, all you need is love, give peace a chance, all that kind of stuff was very much um, in the uh, in the hippie teens of a stockman, go figure, and um, and when I met Jesus, then that made sense to me because the Jesus that I read about was all about those things. And I had concluded as a 17-year-old that the Beatles had asked the good questions and given us good ideals, but there was nothing robust in three chords that would change the world. But Jesus, I discovered, uh, he had something much more uh, robust and that that might change the world. And so when I came to faith as a 17-year-old in 1979, um, Northern Ireland was in the midst of the stuff that Gladys has documented in this book, Considering Grace. And it made sense to me immediately, literally immediately, that Jesus had something to say into the troubles that were going on around me. But it was very quick that I discovered that that's not how most of the church or my fellow believers saw it. Um, I think I've shared how I wrote a letter to the Guardian, the Balamina one, um, less intellectual, about how we should love our neighbours and even our enemies. Um, I was still at school at the time. I, I should have warned my parents I didn't, so they came home from work a little aghast because no, no doubt people at work had pointed it out to them. Um, but I thought it was pretty basic dick and door discipleship to love your neighbor and your enemies. But the next week there was a letter in from some more conservative member of the Balamina community given off at my idea that you could forgive people of their sins and love them and move on. It was a shock to my very early days of faith that somehow we were not in Northern Ireland applying the Bible and faith and the gospel to the bloody violence that was going on around us. And this book, I suppose, recognizes that. It speaks through these 100, over 100 different interviews about how people looked at the church and faith, particularly the Presbyterian church, during that time. And as Gladys has said, There is no doubt that ministers um, come out of it. Those ministers who pastored, those who um, had lost loved ones or were injured, come out of it very positively in ways that I can never imagine. In fact, I'm not sure as a denomination that we've ever um, recognized or remembered or given credit to the ministers, particularly those at the border. People said to me at some stage, Uh, there's three Irelands and there's probably four but give me three to start with which would be um, the north, the south and the border 
And the border's a whole different community. And they took so many hits during the Troubles. Uh, some families taken two or three people murdered during the Troubles. And the same minister going to those homes time after time. That was a hard call pastorally. And I think the book gives credit to that. And I think those interviewed in the book gives credit to that. And so they should. But they still do challenge the church's response to it. Um, And what I found really fascinating was how many people come back to two particular names in the interviews. Um, First of all, the number of people who mentioned the damage caused by Ian Paisley, um, particularly to our denomination, um, how he bullied the PCI, um, protesting outside church house, um, and basically people in the book who were interviewed would say that they felt the church uh, was frightened of stepping out and sharing some sort of peacemaking because they knew that the Free Presbyterian Church really on a kind of a, a real rise in the in the 70s would somehow speak out against and bully us and the damage for a society of sermons that would heat people up and cause them perhaps to do different things that comes through very clearly in the book and then David Armstrong who I had forgotten about from Limavady in 1983 when he went across the road to shake hands with a uh, a priest and to give greetings in the Catholic Church and um, basically had to resign and uh, in the end flee to England because Bangor would not have been far enough and really the police told him as he shares in the book that those who wanted to murder him would find him there because he shook the hands of a priest and gave greetings. We would have been a bit of bother in Fitzroy and of course 1983 was the very year that the Clonard Fitzroy Fellowship started. So while David Armstrong has taken some of this uh, abuse and having to leave. Somehow Ken and Jerry started something that continues to this day. And all I can do there is give credit to this congregation who supported him, uh, Ken, through that particular time when other congregations were far from supporting their minister in doing such things. I mean, it seems ludicrous to us in Fitzroy that you wouldn't be able to shake hands across the road in a Catholic church when we would have um, uh, Father Kieran prayed for us in church recently here in Fitzroy and Father Jerry has been involved in baptisms and Father Martin has spoken and been involved in weddings with me. And yet, during the troubles with the bullying of Ian Paisley in the Free Presbyterian Church, many probably weren't allowed to do such things. There's a general in the book recognition that PCI failed in a number of ways. People said that there was no peace theology coming through the denomination. It's an interesting uh, ask for a peace theology. Uh, That people weren't preaching about it. I, um, it's uh, 34 years this weekend since the the Anglo-Irish Agreement. And uh, I, I, after that, we had Ulster says no, and we had uh, uh, some Belfast. If you went into Belfast City, just there's some Americans in the house, 
Uh, if you went to the City Hall, there was a huge big banner outside that said Belfast said no. There was banners all around the country that Ulster said no. And I remember preaching through the reading that we had this morning um, from Second Chronicles 7. And um, I remember preaching through it and one night saying, again, dear love, my parents who happened to go that particular night and told me after if they'd known what was preaching they might not have. Um, when I said that I was pretty sure that when we got the, to the gates of heaven there wouldn't be a big Union Jack with the sign heaven says no on it. Because it seemed as if that was what people thought. That God's people said no to some sense of agreement between the islands that we live in. And I was trying to make sense of that, but I realized again very quickly that not many of my colleagues or peers were. I heard people talking about how a bomb had gone off in the town center and people hadn't even prayed about it the next Sunday in church. The relationship was so vertical in our theology that we were trying to ignore or hide from um, uh, the, the horizontal that was going on around us. Peace programs and I know Roz was involved in some of those and other ones uh, after the Youth Peace Programme weren't funded very long. Two or three years and we've done enough and now we could use our money on something else rather than peace. And I couldn't grasp that because it seemed to me that the one overriding issue in our society was that. If you're brought up in Northern Ireland in a divided society and you come to follow Jesus, then those verses that talk about enemies and divisions and sectarianism, they seem to be the ones that were most, they were the priority. They were to be highlighted. And yet peace programs came and went and the General Assembly usually voted that they wouldn't continue the funding. And some of those who helped with that, those different bits of funding would have been frustrated by that because you can't do very much in two or three years. You need a longer process to go about it. And one Sinn Féin um, representative in the book said that they had never even met the local minister um, in the town that they were from. These are things that come through recurring, that come through um, this incredible um, book that Gladys and Jamie Johannes uh, have written. There were challenges for me in the book. There's challenges, I think, for all of us in the book. I think what came through in the book for me was this realization of the pastoring of the victims of the troubles. How do we still continue to pastor those people who lost loved ones during the troubles? Have we given enough voice for them to share their stories? Have we given enough remembering to the victims? A couple of quotations. Some in the Presbyterian church are more interested in the ones who pulled the trigger than the ones who got the bullet. It's a very powerful, powerful phrase. Very poetically written in a very coarse, kind of hard way. But some in the Presbyterian church, could that be Steve Stockman, are more interested in the ones who pulled the trigger than the ones who got the bullet. That's a challenge. Or the Presbyterian church buried an awful lot of victims. And it's almost as if there's a bit of amnesia about that. Now, that would be a Protestant problem anyway. And I've talked about that at many funerals. You get to the grave. You shake hands with the loved ones of those who've died. You get out the gate and you close the gate and you never talk to them about that person ever again because you're scared you might 
raise something that might be hurtful, whereas they're always wanting somebody to talk about the loved one that they lost. We're not good at that in Protestantism. Much better at that in Catholicism, where you have your monthly mind mass and you have your yearly masses, and there's just a process of whatever. But within the Presbyterian Church, we have buried an awful lot of victims. Are we saying that 25 years after the ceasefire or 21 years after the Good Friday Agreement that that's gone? Or how do we continue to minister to those who lost loved ones? Colin Davison in his uh, amazing uh, silent witness piece, um, silent testimony piece, uh, or exhibition, when he came to speak at Four Corners, he said that there, uh, the legacy of the troubles, the hurt of the troubles is still now for those who lost loved ones. And so somehow we're called to sensitively pastor the victims and those who lost loved ones, but also have a robust prophetic challenge into that. That to me is the dilemma of how we go about things. So that we wouldn't be accused, as David Latimer is in the book, of being a little bit too friendly with Martin McGuinness at the cost of the ones that he should have remembered with his own congregation. Now, I don't want to set us up on this one because David Latimer really helped us with this when we went to the Ardesh. But when Father Martin and I spoke at the Ardesh, we were determined that when we went into the Ardesh to speak, that we would bring with us those who were the loved ones or the loved ones of victims of the troubles. So our first couple of sentences were about remembering those that we knew, including Jonathan, our assistant minister at the time, who lost his father, trying to sensitively pastor and remember those who are victims, but also to say we need to say something prophetically about forgiveness and peacemaking and compromise and courageous steps towards a future. And to do that, we need to, I think the book would challenge us to understand loyalism and understand how loyalism feels in 2019 and what loyalists felt during the troubles where PCI were for them. There's also something that comes through that challenges the fear, I think, that some people have that there would be a Republican narrative to replace a Protestant narrative within our culture. And I have to say, as I read the book, um, and I read it on a plane, I started reading it on the runway going out, and I finished it as we landed in Dublin coming back. I wasn't reading it the entire time. Don't think it takes you seven days. But I read it during those two flights. Um, As I read it, I thought, this is a book to put into the hands of Sinn Féin and to ask for a review and on Publat and to ask them to review it and to speak about it and to be questioned about it and how they feel their part and the troubles is reflected in the book. One of the things I think that challenged me about Fitzroy was that somebody who talked about peacemaking being, being compartmentalized in churches. So there was that period where we had, um, uh, we had peace leaders in our congregation, peace agents in our congregation. And someone felt that the peace agent allowed the congregation to basically not really be that much involved because the peace agent was doing that. And it made me think of the 10 years that I've been here. Because there have been times when with Clonard Fitzroy, I have felt that it was a wee bit of a compartment. That Sandra and Chris and others have been keeping 
this incredible fellowship that won the Pax Christi Peace Prize going. And the congregation almost were going, yeah, keep going, keep going. But weren't really that engaged in the process. Weren't really that engaged with the events that we did. Some amazing events that we didn't take the opportunity to be at. And I think as we look at Clonard Fitzroy going forward, we maybe need to ask that question. Is the organization or the, or the group itself a hindrance to a wider engagement of our congregation in peacemaking processes? But in the end, it comes down to grace and forgiveness. Grace and forgiveness. There was three contributions that for me were quite crucial. And um, uh, one of them was a minister who was a paramilitary. Not a minister who was a paramilitary. He was a paramilitary who became a minister. Got to get that in the right order. John Hutchison. And John Hutchison has been through the process and has done his time in jail. And yet John uh, spoke very robustly about forgiveness in the cross. He says, I quote, When Jesus said on the cross, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, he was speaking to ones who had judged, condemned, and crucified him. The words, Father, forgive them, show the merciful heart of God that Jesus carried towards his enemies. He goes on, Loving your enemies means not allowing their sin of hating you and persecuting you to become a barrier for you to embrace them. That's very powerful stuff. Loving your enemies means not allowing their sin of hating you and persecuting you to become a barrier to your embrace of them. Many in the book would have talked about repentance was needed before forgiveness. I think John theologically nails it by saying that loving your enemies means not allowing their sin of hating you and persecuting you, which might not have been repented for, to become a barrier for you to embrace them. He goes on, today our society is missing the beauty and the power of forgiveness. The lack of forgiveness is a loss for healing and reconciliation. When I interviewed Gladys there, she recognized that though forgiveness was not a question when they met all these different people, that forgiveness came up time and time again. So how amazing was it for me that when I turned to almost the last pages, that it was Fitzroy again who were on those pages because Janet, Janet Morris had written a piece for Econi, I think it was, that is quoted uh, quite liberally near the end of the book. And Gladys says, or Janet rather says, and I'll come back to this, forgiveness as a, is a grace which is orientated towards the future. Forgiveness is a grace which is orientated towards the future. Now then uh, Janet says this, and I've wrestled with this, and Father Martin wrestled with this all the time. But I'm going to go with it for a moment or two and say that Janet is something that we need to hear. Forgiveness cannot, can never be demanded. Only harm can come from trying to coerce people into it. It is a gift which can be given and received only in freedom. It is a journey, a process which demands honesty, realism and hard work. And the acceptance that some situations will not be healed in this life. She goes on. It involves risk and vulnerability. But it holds within itself 
the possibility of breaking destructive cycles of past conflict, of bringing healing to deep wounds, and new life to damaged relationships. So Father Martin and I constantly come back from Four Corners events or meetings that we've had, and we ask about this forgiveness thing. Jesus asked us, as I preached last Sunday morning in Delaware Vineyard Church in Ohio, um, that we should forgive, we should love our enemies, we should do good to those who persecute us. So forgiveness can never be demanded, Janet says. Does Jesus demand it? Or does Jesus offer it as a gift? Is it a grace which is orientated towards the future? Is it something that is there because it can stop the cycle of past conflict, the destructive cycle of past conflict within ourselves as individuals and within the society that we live in? Terry Laverty is the one who gives the book the title. And Janice and I are particularly pleased because the, the, the cover is Ballycastle. Where else would it be in the world? And that's because, and not because, I presume it was a good photograph of a kind of a storm and trying to find stillness and grace uh, in a storm. Um, but it's also where Terry Laverty walked across raging at God when he lost his brother to the IRA. And Terry took time to come to terms with what that was, shouting at God and in all kinds of different ways. But he concludes by saying, I want to encourage anybody who is struggling as a result of violence and trauma to consider grace. To consider the hope that Jesus offers. To consider that there is a possibility of living without bitterness and walking on as somebody who is amazingly and wonderfully free. This is what forgiveness does. It's not so much about the person you forgive, though I think it could change the life of the people you forgive. It changes the life of the one who forgives because it takes away bitterness and helps us to walk in amazing and wonderful freedom that we might not have otherwise. I still go back to Second Chronicles 7 verse 14. It was used and abused throughout the troubles by evangelicals because it was always used in our call to prayer. Second Chronicles 7 and 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. The problem I found when I was preaching these verses and found and discovered this verse in the early days of my faith was that very few people talked about the humility that we need. Talked about seeking God's face. Talked about us turning from our wicked ways within our Protestantism and within our Presbyterianism and within those of us who are Christians who didn't stand up against the injustices that perhaps caused the troubles. Oh, this is a hard verse because it's not just simply about praying that God will somehow come and heal our land. It's about dealing within ourselves with those things that need dealt with within PCI, within Fitzroy, and within Stockman. Humbling ourselves, seeking God's face, turning from our wicked ways and our complicity in the situation in order that somehow grace and forgiveness 
would be done in the tenderness and compassion of the pastoral care of victims and their loved ones, but with a robust prophetic edge that challenges us to move forward to a better world. Considering grace, it is a phenomenal document and I encourage every one of us to read it because it's about our discipleship. It's not a deluxe. It's not an add-on. It's not a Clonard Fitzroy thing. How we are with the troubles, being with the troubles, being with the troubles and their consequences today, being with the troubles and how we get out of the implications of the troubles into our future is for every Christian to ponder and contribute to, for every Christian to seek to be humble, seek God's face, turn from our wicked ways, and yes, pray as well, but in the context of all of that discipleship going on within us. The book is available. (coughs) Excuse me, so either Dave Thompson or Gladys will be there, probably Dave, or... And you can pick it up. I think it is £12, which is going to be awkward when you bring out your £50 note. But uh, there you go. Please do uh, read the book, ponder the book, and we will look forward to the Four Corners event and also what David might come up with that we might be involved in uh, in later times. I want to encourage anybody who is struggling as a result of violence and trauma to consider grace, to consider the hope that Jesus offers, to consider that there's a possibility of living without bitterness and walking on as somebody who is amazingly and wonderfully free. Let us pray together. Our God, the truth is that all of us probably live with some of the trauma of the troubles. Even those born after the violence stopped. We all live with the consequences of what happened down those years and indeed in the centuries before. We all live with that trauma all around us. We all live in a conflict situation that could raise its head at any moment. We all live in the uncertainty now of Brexit and border polls and an election coming up. Lord, we pray that our faith would not just be vertical, but would have horizontal implications. Lord, when we're still and we know that you're God, when we know who we are as your precious, rescued and loved children, Lord, we pray that that would apply itself to how we see the events in the streets and the city and the country around us. And that you would call us to a discipleship of pastoral care, grace, forgiveness, and prophetic word. And that, Lord, we would be those who would not be the cause of the continuation of this conflict. But we would be those who would give ourselves and offer ourselves to you to break the bondage and the chains of our sectarianism. Lord, we offer ourselves. Help us to reflect on our complicity. Help us to be challenged and inspired by what Gladys has written down. And may your spirit take us into this week and the days ahead as peacemakers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.